This podcast is brought to you by Lerix. Lerix is a payment solutions provider that brings prepaid debit cards to market for your business. Setting up a prepaid card can be complex. Lerix combines their experience with a cutting edge platform to set up and manage this on your behalf. Whether it's a card to help your clients settle claims more easily or improve your business's digital payment capabilities, visit lerixtech.com to learn more. Hi everyone, my name is Nigel Walsh and welcome to episode 79 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording remotely and we'd love to know what guests you think we should get on. Do get in contact by sending us an email to podcasts at 11fs.com if you know someone who would like to come on the show or you yourself would like to come on. Today's show we'll be discussing the most interesting news in the InsureTech and insurance space from across the globe. We don't have Sarah so you're stuck with me but I am delighted to be joined by some brilliant guests. First up, making a much, much welcome return, we have Sophie Winwood, investor at Anthemis. How are you, Sophie? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Um, I was just thinking the last time that I was on this show, I think it was like one of the first ever remote shows of InsureTech Insider. So, And you in a different location, because last time you had a bike, a special kind of bike that I'm not allowed to talk about behind you. <laughs> I did. I did. I was actually at my mum's because my mum owns the special type of bike that we are not allowed to talk to, not me. Um, so I, you know, I'm around there a lot. <laughs> For our listeners, can you recap what Anthemus or who Anthemus are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So Anthemus is a leading um, fintech and insurtech early stage uh, venture capital investor. So we invest globally, have a portfolio of over 100 companies and we were actually just named um, FT Partners Most Active InsureTech Investor for the third year running. Uh, so we love our InsureTech. And um, yeah, I help source and analyze potential opportunities. I saw that. I saw that. And that's super cool and great to, great to see. So thank you for that. Next up, we have Michael Lewis, CEO of Claim Technology. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great, Nigel. Um, I don't love lockdown, uh, but when you find yourself a little bit down, it's worth thinking about the small things in life that bring you joy, one of which is podcasts. So I'm delighted to have been invited onto today's show. Well, we're delighted to have you here. I'm, I'm, I've got two questions for you. First and most importantly, what is it that Claim Technology do? And number two, when do you listen to podcasts? I'm still struggling. <laughs> okay, so uh, Claim Technology helps insurers and their supply chain uh, accelerate digital transformation by automating insurance processes in the cloud and using a platform approach to crowdsource solutions from best-in-class insurtechs. Our one-click insurtech marketplace has been described as the Zapier of insurance, and our no-code tools make it as easy to automate business processes in the cloud as it is to schedule a Zoom call. So that's a bit about what Claim Technology does. In terms of uh, where do I listen to podcasts or when, um, I, I try to do that in the evening, um, sometime after finishing work and going to bed. I'm impressed. I, I found, for me, it's uh, hoovering, ironing, or cutting the grass. And now that we can't cut the grass because it's dark at like 2 p.m. or something ridiculous, it's just getting worse and worse. Uh, Michael, thank you for that. And last but by no means least, Mike Roy, CEO of Dark Matter InsureTech. How are you doing today, Mike? Nigel, I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to be here. I hope uh, the fact that I invited myself onto this doesn't invalidate some of my input. Not one iota. You heard my, my request at the outset. If you wanted to be on the show yourselves, do email us. We would love to have you on. From the accent, it doesn't sound like you're in London. 
I'm, I'm the funny speaking one. Yes, that's correct. I'm in Arizona. Fantastic. So tell us more about Dark Matter. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Dark Matter InsureTech um, is uh, focused on the ENS market, excess and surplus lines. Um, we provide a combination of services and software for intermediaries um, focused on digitalizing their, their processes, um, focusing initially on rate to quote to bind to issuance uh, and building this out as a platform and also doing it in a way that allows them to uh, capture more data and enrich data. Um, and I do want to add podcasts are an extremely important part of my life uh, in helping me fall asleep every night. For the record, not listening to this one, I'm sure. Not at all. That's why I wanted to be on. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we have a genuinely packed show. It feels like news in insurance and insurtech is flying off the shelves this week. So let's get started. Uh, first up, the first news story we have is, does your car insurance policy cover you during the second lockdown? Now, this is a story about uh, the second lockdown, the national lockdown here in, in the UK. And it was on the back of a news story from Sky and others that said motorists will be will still be insured for non-essential lockdown journeys. Now, that was a clarification after the first story said insurers may face thousands in bills if they use their cars for non-essential journeys. And this one personally really got me agitated because I think the industry does such a great job at making sure we're doing all the right things as much as possible. Uh, I think it was the uh, the Mirror reported that drivers are being warned their insurance may be invalid for non-essential journeys. So leaving home without reasonable excuse may mean a £200 fine under COVID rules. There was a number of statements from uh, from organisations saying you should go and check with your insurers. And for anyone who then, like myself, started to um, check what the insurers were saying, because I thought this can't be right, all the insurer social channels, whether it was uh, Aviva or Liverpool, Victoria or others, all clarified very quickly it wouldn't affect um, you being covered. So I, I, I'm not sure where we even start from this, but it's pretty bad. It feels like a rumour to, st to start spreading without any hard evidence. Where, where would you start, Sophie? What would you do on this? Did you even ever worry about it? It's it, What is so strange is just to understand where this comes from. And it, it kind of ties into the sort of larger trend of this year around fake news. And, and who would have thought that fake news would be, you know, coming into InsurTech insurance. But, um, you know, the problem is if, if you're a lot of people who, who read the mirror might just see that as the story and then not even go back and check and and. I think people are loving to hate on insurers at the moment. And so maybe it was just a, a clickbaity um, headline. But um, yeah, I kind of, I, I, yeah, it feels very unfair, actually. For, for an industry we all love, right? I mean, Michael, your world of claims would have, this would have worried people. The comment from uh, one of the ladies, I think at Uswitch said, claims could now cost you thousands of pounds if you go out without invalid insurance, which is true. But I think the point was, to Sophie's comment on fake news, I, I refuse to write the words fake news myself on Twitter for, for obvious reasons. I just didn't want to say it. Um, but you've described it in the two right words, right? Michael, did you see any uptick as a result in this? Did you see, I guess there was no extra claims coming in, but do you see people coming to insurers or uh, people getting irate about this online or otherwise? Um, well, yes, I think it's, I think it saves a lot of confusion. But um, I think in terms of, um, I don't think it's enforceable. 
but perhaps one idea is for uh, insurers to add a question to their call script with claims being auto-rejected unless they unless customers meet one of the following conditions. One, customers were driving a convertible and the roof was completely down. Uh, two, it was raining, but the consumer continued to drive with all four windows open. Or three, their name is Dominic Cummings and they were driving 25 miles to test their eyesight. <laughs> Oh, it's going to be one of those shows. Oh, brilliant. Um, look, I, I, I guess the question here is, could you even plausibly uphold this, which is a big, uh, the whole purpose of getting a cover is to make sure you're covered for the journeys that you do. We know in the UK, it's about uh, limit your travel to essential travel only. M Mike, from the US perspective, how are you seeing things play out? Have you had similar uh, fake news scares or people saying you can't be covered if you go out when the city's in lockdown or elsewhere? Well, no, we're, we're happily free of any fake news here. So, but, but fresh off the social dilemma, uh, you know, learning that fake news, uh, and I do hate saying that now that I hear it, uh, spread six times faster than real news, if there's such a thing as real news, right? Um, but what's, there's so many interesting precedents here. I mean, obviously, um, if you're driving a getaway car from a bank robbery and you have an accident, right? Is that covered? What's the difference in the law versus a mandate? You know, how is, how is that enforceable and, and to what extent? And, and I do agree with Michael's enforceability. The, the unfortunate thing of it all, um, kind of like when COVID happened, um, and there wasn't pandemic coverage, the ultimate black eye, is on the insurance industry, and it and it just doesn't put um, the the value of insurance, the ultimate value, and the role that it plays in a positive light with the consumer. I I think between yourself, Michael, and Sophie, you've summed it up quite nicely. the The other article that got me upset at the weekend was uh, in the Sunday Times talking about how do we lose trust in insurance, and I think articles like this that spread from one publication to another don't help the situation your point about spreading six times faster as fake news because we almost want to hate on it is kind of upsetting for people that spend all their time on this um i i, I will clarify at the very end here the abi the association of british insurers came out very quickly and clarified that this is not true sky news then updated their website to say any rumors of x aren't true and insurers came out individually to try and stop the extra uh, calls, whatever else they were getting, whether it was online or uh, via contact center, uh, coming in to say this is uh, unfounded in any way, shape, or form. Which I'm, which I'm really pleased to see. They did something similar for home insurance for all of us working at home. Let me let me move on because that will just upset me. Otherwise, I'm pleased somebody jumped on it in a positive way. Uh, the next one is about insurance investment and. Um, this is from Insurance Business America, where it talks about insurtech investments keeping pace, but not all will survive. And actually, this is on the back of some research that I was involved with here at Deloitte um, for the uh, Deloitte Center of Financial Services called COVID-19 Pandemic Shifts Insurtech Investment Priorities. Now, the, the net summary of this is there were zero net new start insurtech startups in the first half of 2020, which on one hand is quite saddening given the last five years of hyper growth from zero through to thousands. Um, but the positive side is that the numbers and the volume of investment that's going on is um, robust 
and almost at the same levels as we had last year and probably going to exceed it. So it does look bright for existing startups. I guess it's important to remember that it was the uh, top 10 insurtechs, though, that walked away with the majority of the money, with the rest of them continuing to fight for what was left. So that was, when you break it into the detail, I think it was a very, very small number that got a very large percentage. So the, the, the amount of money going around the, the broader pool was was getting smaller and smaller and harder to fight. I best the best the best qualified person is Sophie. I mean, as an investor yourself, what's your take? What have you seen so far this year? And when I say this year, I mean January, February, November, because I'm not sure what happened in the middle. I don't know. Did it? Yeah, we I think we just skipped um, to November. I think so. What are you seeing? Yeah, so um, I could talk about this for for hours, so I will, will try and keep it brief. Um, so, so it's been it's been a super interesting year to be an investor, um, and I think it, there is some really good signs and signals that you know the insurtech se- sector is is continuing to to see growth, and and it's kind of been this. There's been a lot of polar polarity. Is that a word? You know what I mean. There's it, there's polars, um, which is you have um, a lot of the larger insure tech companies are are still receiving very very large amounts of fundraising because they are the more established players. And in a time of volatility, investors tend to um, want to put their money into something that's already there, that's already been scaled, and, and has some has some kind of some de risk aspect of it. We also saw quite a lot of activity in the seed series A stage and pre-seed, which is because if you're kind of starting a company or it's relatively early stage, you're still um, doing experimentation for the next year or two. So you've got a bit of time um, to, to kind of go through this time of volatility in the difficult sales cycle. Now, that's not saying that the insurtechs have, haven't been badly hit, especially in terms of new sort of MGAs where they're trying to get capacity from insurers that are struggling with the whole remote thing still and, and dealing with a lot of their own problems and kind of maybe putting, you know, uh, providing insurtechs capacity on the back burner. And what that left is this is really interesting band in the middle, which is the kind of Series B, Series C, that we're seeing a real kind of um, almost like dearth of, of, of funding. Um, and that's um, why Anthemis is actually, we, we've uh, recently announced that we've set up a venture growth fund that's specifically targeting um, that sort of B to C range uh, to ensure that these insurtech startups can get through the funding cycle uh, right up until, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the exit. Um, and, and the last thing I would say as well is, um, you know, it's great that Lemonade IPO'd this year. I think it's had a real halo effect for insurance. Everyone, I mean, insurance has always been cool. We've always thought it's been cool. We know this. But now, like, other investors are, are really jumping on the bandwagon, which is which is super exciting to see. And for those that can't see us, we are practically all here in hoodies and jeans. Okay, so it's definitely super cool. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. On, on the other side of the fence, Mike, Michael, w- w- what's your take? Are you seeing insurers slow down their engagement with you? Are you seeing hard to access funds to extend the runways or how have you seen it? I mean, I, I'm seeing an increased awareness of the, the need to adapt by insurers. Um, but I think what I want to say is really that insurtechs are founded by some of the most impressive people we have in the industry. They really have the ideas and the ability to execute and create the future of insurance, but they need support at times like this, and they need the support of insurers uh, to help them come to market 
to provide them with both um, financial support um, and sort of moral support. Um, so what I'd really say is to insurers out there is, is do yourself a favor and do the industry a favor. Give InsureTechs your support and help them thrive because it will help create the future of insurance for us all. I'm not sure anyone's going to disagree with you. I think isn't the challenge if all the if a large proportion of the money has gone to the big guys, to the lemonades, to the hippos, the roots that are all established and maybe a, a year or so ahead, we're now left working out how we get the bottom 30% spent between a larger number of people. So in, in that process, do we have to let some of those insurtechs go by the wayside, I guess? I don't think it's all about money, Nigel. I, I, you know, I think you know when I look at ourselves, we're well funded um, and we manage our runway well. But to, to some extent, more important than funding is actually just getting insurers to work with us um, and provide us with the use cases that enable us to better understand, you know, product and market fit, and uh, how we can bring sort of value propositions to market. So it's not about so much the money. It's just about the engagement and being able to turn things around quickly and show some financial commitment. You know, we're often asked to do things for customers that are very, you know, cash rich. Um, and yet they have no, the one thing they haven't worked out what to do in a procurement process is actually provide some funding. Uh, I'm smiling away to myself. It, it, it usually is the, hey, I'm the X billion pound dollar gorilla. Please give me this thing free of charge. Yeah. Um, which I never really understand. It doesn't doesn't really reek of partnership. Mike, what's what's your what's your take? Have you seen something similar? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, like any any startup industry or or new businesses being spawned in any in any at any time, they won't all make it. They won't all hit the mark. They won't all um, you know get those key critical early partnerships they need to vet their solution and validate their solution. I mean, there will be there will be carnage, of course. Um, you know, the, there's an overwhelming amount of money interested in the specialty insurance space. It's, it's, it's amazing, really, the amount of opportunities we have to help people find places to put their money. Um, and it's very dangerous in specialty insurance because from a distance, you can look at it and think, oh, the inefficiencies are obvious. But if you don't really understand why they're there, this concept of freedom of rate and form, that conspires against it, um, a lot of money can be lost. I, I, I always make the distinction, and I'm curious, you know, Sophie, what you think about this. I always make the distinction for some reason, in my mind, between, you know, the operational insure tech enabled startup versus the pure solution provider. Um, and, um, you know, the, the former, um, we've seen some great success, um, uh, you know, Lemonade being one of them, right? Um, but the, the pure and sure tech providers from our perspective, this is an interesting time that I think is a great window of opportunity because we're hearing people very panicked about all the efficiencies that they got caught flat on. And they really want to focus on the efficiencies around business acquisition and retention. And some of the things that are a little more nebulous, like data, well, what does that mean? you know, are falling by the wayside and they really want to focus on efficiencies uh, where it's going to make them money. Sophie? Um, totally agree. I, I was I was just going to say, I think that when when we talk about InsureTech, it's, it's, it's almost lost its meaning now because it covers so many different things. And actually there are key 
um, segments within InsureTech that have, have have really seen some tailwinds from this from this pandemic. Um, it's kind of enabling digitization, um, automation, operational efficiency is is one of them. Um, there, there's a theme around the home, home insurance, feeling safe in your home. I mean, insurance is actually a counter-cyclical product because when people have volatility in their life, they like to have um, some security around, you know, payouts. Um, so we, we actually invested in a company called HomeTree, uh, which I believe who, someone was on your show a couple of weeks ago, um, which is it's you know, all about maintenance and insurance in the home. Um, the other trend that we that has seen some um, real interest at the moment is, is also around climate change. Um, yes, the pandemic is one risk, but climate is the other. Um, so another lesson that we did was um, in a, 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 a full-stack reinsurer called Kettle, um, which is uh, looking at um, balancing the risk in climate change. Um, so there are kind of real pockets of acceleration um, within the early stage. Um, it's just enabling you to you have to position your business to show that you're going to make it through this this period of volatility and come out the other side as as a real winner yeah i I think it's fascinating i i you know you whether you've got a full stack that's got a certain perspective you've got the enablers and i definitely take on board michael's point about how we make or help insurers go faster with the engagement to not let us hang on for too long so we can either prove it quickly or not i mean it's just it's as important to get a quick no. I think that came from uh, your colleague, Matt Jones, a while back. Actually. It's better to get a quick no than a slow no. So speed is, is always of the essence. I'll move on, actually, because it's actually related to our next story. As I said, it's a packed new show this week. Um, uh, there's a couple of stories here about crowdfunding and raising in general. So a couple of examples here. Uh, Laka, one of the, our friends of the show, have exceeded their £1 million investment target to flip the insurance industry, again, through crowdfunding. Um, there's a whole host of folks that have just taken to crowdfunding. So Lacker is one. Uh, you've got another a company called Upside on the Savings, set up by Andrea Schmidt, uh, former Aviva exec, along with Paul Russell and others. And then another uh, in Equips Me, which is on the health insurance or health tech side. So it was been, it's really interesting for me to observe more and more people turn to crowdfunding. I think um, Dan Murray Serta from Your Heights also announced it on uh, his uh, Twitter feed last night that they were crowdfunding. You can register early. I'd love to get people's perspectives on heading out to the open market for individuals to take a piece of the a piece of the pie almost. Sophie, is this is this putting your world at risk, or is this um, helping the cause with more people seeing what companies are up to right now? I think it's a really, really positive thing for the industry. And I don't, as a, as a venture capitalist, I don't see this as a threat. I think it's a very different thing, right? It's, it's almost marketing. You're not really doing this to, um, to get the capital, although it is, it can be an efficient and effective way to raise capital, but actually it's, it's really a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's super complicated. You don't want thousands of shareholders like holding point, whatever of your company really, but actually, as a way to get marketing to feel people can get engaged with the cause is really, really good. And I think um, I kind of liken InsureTech to fintech quite a lot. But actually, this is where where kind of pe- like people like Monzo and, and Revolut first saw their their real sort of um, acceleration was through these these crowdfunding campaigns, and then they built into bigger and bigger and companies. Um, 
so so I think it's great and it's it's I find we're finally seeing insurtech b2c brands that people love and and want to be part of but that's always the link back to the first story on trust so we're now where you've got a company like lacquer where I'm a passionate cyclist for those that haven't realized um but where you where you into the community of cycling or something like that you're building a community of people that care about the thing that you're insuring. You mean I care about my health because I'm always tracking stuff. I care about my bike because it's my my couple of hours of freedom at a weekend or whatever else. Does the same or would the same apply, Michael, to someone that's passionate about the claims process? Or could you not get the same sort of benefit because people just don't see it in the same light as a as a collective or a community? I, th- I think I, I make a distinction between sort of B2B businesses and B2C businesses. So I think it's much easier for a B2C business to uh, crowdsource funds um, and develop a community of people that are aligned with their values uh, and want to give them feedback and test their product. I think when you're trying to describe enterprise software that would just make the internal operations of an enterprise more I- easier, it's not something which will resonate with, commu- you know, with with end consumers uh, as investors, I, I definitely take that on board. It does. It does, though. Also, go to I don't know if anyone follows someone like Harry Stebbings in the Twenty Minute VC. I love his energy. He's also a special bike fan. Let's leave it there. Uh, but I love the energy and the stuff that comes out from Harry. His his interviews are always insightful. But to your point, I look at some of the companies and, and founders that he interviews and get. I really like that company. I believe in the team. I believe in what they're doing. I believe in their cause. And actually, enterprise software, whether it's Salesforce, Google, SaaS, whatever it might be, for someone getting into that, I, you know, I look at some of the stories you've seen, you go, actually, that could be a good first way of making an investment. And I think m- maybe the US, Mike, is slightly different at making investments in firms this way compared to the UK. I don't know. Is, is that a, a more common approach out there? I, I don't think it is. Um uh, and I, I think it, it kind of goes along with, to what Michael was saying, you know, the, this consumer connection, right? When you get into crowdfunding, there needs to be a general understanding and connection um, to a broader to a broader uh, class of, you know, a group of people that they understand what you're doing and the value of what you're doing and how it relates to them. That connection claims is a tough one, right? You know, they might not see claims as the delivery of a promise. They might see it as a necessary evil, you know, it, but, it, but on specialty insurance in particular in our in our space, um, they don't have that connection, the, the broad consumer base. Um, you know, this market is so specialized and people want to invest in it for its, its specialization, um, the distribution model, but the risks are complex. And if you go to the as I hire younger and younger people in my business, um, I used to be able to say when they asked me, what do you do? And I say, what market do you serve? I said, well, you've heard of Lloyd's, right? You know what Lloyd's does. And over time, less and less, they understand that. That used to be my leading example of, the, of what we do. And it's not anymore. They don't know what specialty insurance is or what its purpose is. That's quite scary in itself, sitting here in the capital of the insurance world. I say that completely biased without any facts whatsoever. That, that's, quite, that's quite concerning. What, one last quick question. Um, Sophie, where does, where does crowdfunding fit on the overall grand scheme of things, at what point do you turn to it? It feels like day one, Mike might have gone, I've got a problem, let me go solve it myself, I'm gonna self-fund it. You then go, what, friends and family? Where does this, where does it all fall into the sequence of events? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't think that there is a an answer in terms of it, it goes like 
friends and family, angels, VC, crowdfunding. It's really for a specific type of company um, that wants is it's usually B2C or it could, it could be more of a like um, a B2B consumery type brand like aimed at SMEs. Um, and it's for the purpose of um, getting your customers more engaged with the products and and marketing. Um, we would, uh, as VCs, um, look at it with a bit of caution because valuation can, can be crazy. It can be off-putting for future investors, um, given that it really kind of messes up your cap table. Um, but it can be a really, really efficient and effective tool. Um and I think what's interesting about the current sort of investing climate is that we've kind of seen what what happened with with Bitcoin now happen in real life with stocks and shares, which is, you know, the beginning of this year, the market plummeted. People got a bit excited that, you know, then stocks kind of went like this. And a, a lot of people, retail investors were like, oh, oh, I can make some money by doing this. This is quite exciting. And I think it's actually um, kind of financially educated a lot of people that have now started to look for returns. And obviously, because interest rates are so goddamn low, um, to start looking for returns elsewhere in something that's a bit more interesting and a bit more relevant to to them as, as customers. So I think this, um, you know, you'll, you'll continue to see an interest in in this type of return. Uh, that, that's so helpful. I, I, I love it. I love the idea of building community through it. I get the point around B2B versus B2C. Uh, we will remind everyone, capital is at risk. Do your own due diligence. We're not all experts like Sophie and the team at Anthemist, so make sure you do that. The one thing I've enjoyed doing, though, is if you look at some of the campaigns, you can scroll through and you can see people putting in £10,000 or in some cases £10. And that whole bit of, I am an investor, I might have put £10 in, is quite nice. Cool. Right, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back very, very soon. Have you checked out 11FS's YouTube channel yet? You'll find hundreds of videos on everything from analysis of the hottest fintech headlines to predictions for the future of banking. There's tons of exciting content in the pipeline, including their brand new six-part video series, Decoding Banking as a Service. Head to bit.ly 11FS YouTube to subscribe for instant updates. 11FS just launched two brand new shows on their LinkedIn page. And if you love the podcast, then you should go and check them out too. Every Tuesday, they deep dive into the biggest banking and fintech news stories on Newsroom. They already have a great episode of the FinCEN files leak and the CrowdCube Cedars merger that you can watch back on the LinkedIn or YouTube now. And every Thursday, they speak to some of the biggest experts in technology and financial services about the work that they do and their careers to date. Well worth checking out. You'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry. So what are you waiting for? Search 11FS on LinkedIn and follow them to start catching you the streams. Thanks and on with the show. Next up, acquisitions are taking place and they are big. So a couple of stories here. Commercial insurance technology provider Bold Penguin has entered into a definitive agreement to acquire Risk Genius, an insurance document intelligence software. The acquisition involves Risk Genius's data and analytics products and its team to join Bold Penguin's existing SaaS platform. A huge fan of Chris Cheatham and the team over there. Love what Risk Genius are up to, so excited to uh, dig more into that one. And another acquisition worth noting is that Brown & Brown have acquired Coverhound and its wholly owned unit Cyber Policy. San Francisco-based Coverhound provides an online marketplace where consumers and SMBs can shop, get quotes and buy insurance. Coverhound isn't an insurance carrier, but can be compared to as the expedient of insurance. 
Brown & Brown sells insurance policies for multiple carriers to consumers and businesses. This, of course, is not Brown & Brown's first acquisition and has it bought at least 20 businesses already in 2019. So, wow, when we started doing the notes for the show, we were just flooded with things like this. And these two, I don't even know where we start. I mean, Mike and Michael, I start with, with you both. As people in this space, is this something that you see given the COVID nature or times that we're in? Are we going to see consolidation like uh, Risk Genius and Bold Penguin? Or are we seeing acquisition going, going ahead in this way? Is this something that you, that you saw in the crystal balls when you started? Michael, do you want to start? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, Bold Penguin are obsessed about the quote and bind process. So their goal is to optimize uh, that process as fast as humanly possible. And they see an opportunity with Risk Genius to leverage their machine learning and AI solutions to uh, to achieve their objectives. So it's a pretty smart move from my perspective to acquire them because it enables Bold Penguin to acquire capability rather than build it themselves. Uh, and get to their goal faster. I think also just in terms of, you know, both being kind of insure techs, they're, they're both very similar companies. So culturally, I think it will be um, easy to bring the two together. I think with Brown & Brown, it's almost the opposite story. Um, I think they're a traditional people-based broker. I think they're now trying to um, acquire a digital capability. I think the risk there is that they could be overspending on an acquisition and spending time and energy on trying to extract synergies from a deal where the culture fit isn't right and where their customers don't really want that solution. They like the old traditional model. I think there's a risk for any organization that goes through acquisition and brings people in, whether you're a big consulting firm, a small consulting firm, a large carrier or broker. I think the one that got me though was the sheer volume of transactions in terms of there's a lot of stuff going on. So maybe your point about mixing them all up together into a big mixing pot is probably the chat. You know, what culture do you end up with at the end of all this? Mike, I don't know what you're seeing from, from the state side. Well, yeah. Um, so the, the organizations I've been a part of over the last 20 years have always been highly acquisitive, have grown phenomenally through acquisition growth and the consolidation in, in our market continues on, on all fronts. Um, so the, the competition um, is getting stronger and the, the acquisition uh, opportunities are getting smaller. What's, in, what's interesting with this is that we've seen some very obvious acquisitions in um, somebody like an Aon purchasing a cover wallet, right, to enhance their digital distribution capability um, or one vendor buying another vendor's solution, uh, applied buying uh, Indio or Nextech to roll into to Ivan's, um, not to speak for them, but presumably to 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 you know benefit from that and and take it away from you know other competitive opportunities. What this is telling me is that as organizations like Brown and Brown, who have a huge uh, specialty intermediary as well as a retail. Um, they're trying to catch up in one fail swoop uh, as opposed to trying to seed some initiative internally, fund it, and move at the, at the, you know, the size, move at the pace of an organization of that size and complexity, which is really, really hard to do. And maybe to Michael's point, and maybe, Sophie, you've seen this before and can play it out, how do you do that? And bring somebody like that in who's on the outside, moving very quickly, building solutions, iterating, changing, failing fast, bring them to an organization of that scale 
of audit, regulatory, compliance, process, policy, procedure, and maintain that. Go ahead, Sophie. So having kind of worked in, in insurance M&A, um, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And I think the problem is, is that the deal team just want to get the deal and don't even think about like the, the kind of disconnection between corp dev and then the kind of actual business people that need to put this together and create the synergies that are, have been modeled out to, you know, justify the, the expense that they're being paid is, is always, I mean, that's why we get, get Deloitte in to, to kind of do some of that. Cause it's, uh, it can be, it's, it's, it's more, more often than not, um, a lot more expensive and a lot less um, revenue sort of synergistic as, as it's kind of initially forecast. Yeah, I think for me, you have to make a choice. Do you focus narrowly on your value prop and then try to get deeper and deeper in terms of your ability to execute? Or do you try to capture more and more of the value chain? So do you go um, vertical or horizontal? Um, for me, the Bold Penguin Risk Genius deal was they're trying to capture the same part of the value chain. Um, so they're not going broad, but they're, and they're probably more going to be more likely to be successful at achieving their objectives. Uh, the brown and brown deal is the opposite. They're kind of expanding horizontally, um, so they're um, more likely to capture more of the value chain, but they're probably less likely to be successful at doing it. It's a really difficult one. I, I, I totally get it. I almost feel my role, many of my peers' role in the industry is around orchestrating, you know, let's take claims, technology, put it together with rate quote bind, a bit of underwriting, some custom stuff, put them all together to solve problems. You can almost see why insurtechs, almost back to our very first story about funding, if you were going to struggle in the middle where you said, Sophie, the Series B was, was challenging, by putting two people together, does that make it easier for them to survive longer, create the longer runway or, or, or whatever it may be? Or does it make it harder? I, I don't know. Yeah, and I think it's it's it is um, a potential route through um, that that kind of issue, um, and it's it's I think as a as an investor, it's quite a positive thing because it means that you don't have this like you run out of money or you raise VC funding. Like those are the two options. That there is this option of consolidation of building a bigger and a better company, and you know the the thing that we're not getting from these stories is the price, right? So. Um, have these companies take advantage of the fact that probably the valuations are lower given public markets that that do kind of then reflect on private markets um are they slightly distressed or is it just a, a real sort of play on you know um the kind of expansion and the digitization trend um could be different um motives for each um but you know the price you pay Will be will have a very important impact on how successful or not as well. It's always the stronger together, right? And it's how, how do we do that? And the flip side, the the consolidation at the broker or carrier level says to me, we own distribution. Why would you not want access to all of our clients? And for that, we're going to pay. We're going to accelerate you back to Michael's earlier request to go. Just please go faster. Can we go faster inside the tent rather than knocking on the door from the outside? So. I'll, I'll move us on. Um, the next story is another one of the ones that, God, I must have been reading something bad at the weekend, but really got to me at the weekend. Because as an industry and as someone who works inside insurance, I'm super proud of all the work that we do around mental health, well-being, speaking out, and so much more. Uh, a, an article in The Times this weekend talked about why COVID stress 
or a miscarriage could stop you getting insurance. And of course, another great headline like earlier on that I wanted to dig into a little bit more. And it, sound, it, it, it states that insurance companies have been found to reject customers for any cover if they suspect their mental health is fragile. And I'll pause there for a second and say, for nine months at working at home and not being outside the door much, I'm not sure many people aren't fragile, which really makes me worry, you know, back to the whole point about trust and, what, and what's not. It goes on to say mental health reasons account for three out of 10 claims on income protection policies, making them the most common type of claim after back pain. So due to the subjectivity and definitions of mental health issues and policyholders are being caught out by the, the wide range of terms used by insurers in small print. Again, not a good look, I think, for some of the insurers about small print, trust, and so much more, especially when I think they've worked, as I said at the outset, so, so hard to say, speak out, uh, do the right thing, look out for, uh, you know, look out for each other, asking, uh, is everyone okay, or it's okay not to be okay, and all the things that go around with. The ABI, uh, which represents the industry again, says it's people working with the charities in the health and protection industry to give people with mental health conditions access to the right insurance. I think we probably saw something similar when we saw uh, people doing travel insurance with pre-existing conditions. So it starts to go back to uh, similar issues that we saw there. Uh, I guess open up to the, to the, to the floor. A any initial views on, Mike, if I start with you, I mean, mental health, well-being seems to be on the agenda of every single uh, startup, carrier, broker that we engage with. Is this the sort of thing that you'd expect from carriers to come out with and then reject claims going forward? You know, it. it uh, I, I'd have to give a somewhat emotional reaction to this because it, it's it's dangerous. It's impossible to define. Um, and I wonder. I, I always wonder what the legal impact to the insurance world is uh, when it comes to manuscripting forms and exclusions and these types of things. And I wonder if this is that run amok um, a little bit. Uh, but having said that, we've seen other trends towards, uh, you know, smoking or obesity and these types of things that have worked their way into a common vernacular now. But mental health, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Michael? Well, I, th I think um, insurance is one of those things that doesn't necessarily um, work optimally in the free market, uh, particularly health insurance. So whenever you purchase insurance, essentially you're transferring risk and financial liability from one person to another. So if I'm not well and I'm looking to take out health insurance and my insurer knows nothing about me, I, I'm at an advantage and I'm going to self-select insurance because I think I'm at risk of, of needing to make a claim. So the insurer is obviously at a disadvantage because I know my health best. Um, it's therefore incumbent upon the insurer to find more and more information about me in order to figure out what its risk is. Um, the way that data is exploding and analytics is exploding means that very soon it could well be that insurers know my health better than I do. And if that is the case, then in a free market, it may be that either they refuse to insure me um, or they refuse to, you know, or, you know, or it becomes unaffordable. And therefore, the free market doesn't always work. Um, and it kind of rubs against our values as a society that healthcare should be available to all. And so therefore, we need, I think, an element of either regulatory oversight or um, government uh, law to make insurance compulsory and, you know, to have some parts of society offsetting the costs of uh, other parts of society in order to make 
uh, insurance available to all at a cost that's fair to all um, and which provides coverage. Yeah, I, I mean, this one is tough. I feel like we've spent years trying to get people to talk and then comments like this. Is there a risk, Sophie, that, that this then says people will no longer want to talk or share stuff to, to Michael's point and, and start going backwards on the whole thing again? I mean, that is the real risk, right? Is that if if suddenly, I mean, already, especially less in the US, I think, but a lot in the UK, uh, seeing a counsellor or a therapist is almost sort of, a bit of a taboo you don't you wouldn't you wouldn't say that you're going to see a therapist or that you need a therapist and so things like this will will mean that more people will, will kind of pull back from it um we, we we need to normalize this this needs to be i think everyone should see a, see a therapist really um and i think it's it's important that these signals don't push um push the other way um I also think it's it is a difficult. I mean, I've, this is a very anecdotal, you know, sa- sample size of one. But I had a friend who was claiming on the health insurance due to anxiety issues, um, and and um, they called and they said no. Uh, they spoke to one person, they said no. Called back, spoke to another person, and and managed to win them kind of with the emotional story, and they, and they said yes because it is this grey area. So actually, you know, you get the right person on the phone who kind of understands it and and feels like they want to give you a, a shot and you're kind of through and that shouldn't be how insurance insurance works really so yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting i think actually to the to the point about the us i was reading an article a few days ago that said having a therapist um or support in the us was and this is new to me being a a, a prude irish or a prude brit i guess or very uh, cautious but in the us it would apparently be it would be very open to have in your diary that was open to everyone, hey, at the therapist or seeing, seeing X, Y, Z for help. And that's quite a common thing. I don't think you see that here. Is that a, that's normal, Mike shaking his head for those, or nodding his head, should I say, for those who can't see. So I think what's interesting for me, um, Nigel, is is that we, we seem to have quite a negative view of mental health in the UK. We tend to not take it as seriously as physical um, health. And um, I would actually argue the opposite. I think if you are seeking um, therapy, I actually see that as a sign of strength. I see that as a strength of character, that somebody recognizes that something isn't quite right and they want to do something actively to make it better. So counterintuitively, I would say the opposite. Somebody who's engaging with a therapist and trying to work things through is actually a much better risk than somebody who isn't. In the same way that we saw it that in the fintech world, when Wonga, for example, was making lending decisions to people, um, it actually found empirically that they were had better risks lending to people who were previously bankrupt than people who weren't. I think there's there's so much in this story. We could have a whole show about this. We actually had a health show a couple of weeks back with Mark Allen and Beamer and a few others on, uh, and it has come up in terms of the number of mental health claims. We mentioned it a minute ago. I think there's been some great examples. There's a CEO of one of the largest banks that took uh, famously eight weeks leave for mental health issues. The ability to be open about it, dare I say, men are way worse than women about talking and being open. Um, the uh, the number of suicides in, uh, in, in men is, is, is traumatic just to watch the, some of the stats itself. So I do think we need to be there for each other. I do think the industry has done an amazing job inside the industry doing things. And it just, this feels out of step with what the industry has been doing in itself globally to support, uh, to support their clients. So 
hopefully it's the exception rather than the rule. But, but um, Nigel, Nigel, I think the real issue here with, in terms of the lack of trust in the industry is that the industry has defined itself as a loss reimbursement business. So they ask me as a consumer to pay for something for an event that may never happen and for an event which I'm not sure if it's ever going to be covered. And that's what is really at the heart of the lack of trust in the industry um, because you don't know what you're buying. Um, and it's only when the event happens that you start to argue, and it's a zero-sum game. What's good for the insurer is bad for the consumer, and what's good for the consumer is bad for the insurer. Uh, and it creates this lack of trust and this kind of feeling that there's somehow this is a game. I, I, I worry about your last comment, because that goes back to the same article about trust. Do we then follow the advert that they had in New York for Lemonade, where on the top of taxis, and they since apologised for it, but it said insurance without 100 years of uh, screwing you so apologies for language uh, but then do you, do you you know you follow a model like lacquer where they've said well, let's get a stop loss you never pay more than market rate but if there's no claims you don't pay anything so i think we have the opportunity to change it's just going to take a uh, take a while your your point on games is a good segue to our next story so thank you for the the, the tee up uh, and that is a new digital car insurance in the uae rewards motorists for driving safely um, now, this is quite an interesting one, actually. Uh, United Arab Emirates drivers can now win rewards such as free meals, discounted hotel stays and gym membership for driving safely. The product is called Hala and is an Abu Dhabi based insurtech by Adenda. Uh, this smart insurance web app allows policyholders to purchase policies and file claims online and most importantly, win rewards for every day they drive accident free. That last statement worries me a little bit. Uh, driving accident-free for a year does not give the user a significant discount on, on the next year's premium, but can get rewards such as discounted meals. Uh, Waleed, the CEO and co-founder of Hala, said that it wants to reward customers as well as building long-lasting relationships, as well as disrupting long-established principles in the insurance field. So it wants to encourage everyday good behaviour rather than giving future promises. What do we think? Gamifying motor, good, bad, indifferent? This feels like vitality for driving, right? Well, I think uh, this idea of a more digital distribution of any insurance product at some point is going to going to take on some of these characteristics in terms of driving behavior and gamifying it to some extent. I've seen some very successful MGA business models that had something similar to this um, through acquisition, and they were held to a very high level of scrutiny to make sure that it wasn't steering and, um, you know, that it was handled appropriately if, if some gift was given for writing business, that there were tax implications to the ultimate recipient. And, uh, and it does, uh, it does challenge the model a little bit, but, but, you know, as a consumer, um, it does drive our behavior. And I think there are good ways and right ways to do it as simple as gamification and just rewarding and acknowledging progress and, you know, um, you know, progress or process that you're making in a, in an acquisition of something cycle. Um, but, uh, in the larger placement, when it gets to be monetary, I think it's, it's a little different. Any more views on this one? I mean, I, I don't drive that often. I'm not sure if I get in the car would be reminded to go, hey, you get a free meal if I drive well on the small amount of miles I do per year. But maybe it's different if you drive every single day. I don't know. I think also the like the rewards have to be good, right? Like 
so many of these things, when you see discounted hotel, it's either like a super expensive hotel that a discount means you'd still no way be able to afford it, or it's a kind of rubbish hotel that, that they need the extra business, so they've done a partnership. I think the thing that, that Vitality does really well um, is that it links the, the sort of um, rewards to the, the thing that you're aiming to do, which is to get healthier. Like, I love it that I get 50% off a pair of running shoes each year that is awesome and worth it 100% for me. So it feels like if it could go a little bit away from the gimmicky, like, mm, free burger, to, I don't, actually, but I don't know what you would reward drivers with, a nice driving pair of gloves? I don't know, I, don't, I can't drive. So. Driving gloves? You know it's Christmas. You've been watching Christmas ads, haven't you? I mean, but that's the point. Hey, have a free meal and sit in your car and get no exercise. That feels like counterintuitive. I, I do worry that the freebies can be a bit of a gimmick sometimes so to your point it has to be something valid and interesting and useful will it be a car wash once a week i don't know i guess see i should be marketing the but but it's but it's something like how i, I don't know i i can't quite put my finger on whether this is good or bad it's probably because i just don't drive often enough my worry would be i'm not obsessed with it it's kind of a means i use a car to get from a to b whereas my health really matters or my pet's health really matters so i'm obsessed with closing the apple rings or getting a blue dot on that bike i'm not allowed to mention so all those things i'm i like doing i'm i've been tricked into doing on a daily basis now i i, I don't know michael you a big driver with this would this appeal to you or not or well i, I um i'm not a big driver i actually live in central london so i choose not to own a car and i travel on public transport um but i've been traveling less on public transport and now getting around by on on bike um i think this is to me it's just it is a bit gimmicky really it, it's not really about it's not tied into a sort of a cause and trying to make you a better version of you um so I'm, I'm not entirely convinced about it. I suppose at the extreme, I think what could be interesting is maybe they would provide me with free car insurance on the basis that they are acting as an affiliate for lots of varied B2C companies who, you know, are monetizing my, you know, community. Um, but it, it feels a bit odd to me. I, I, look, I, I'm with you. I guess the one thing that none of us are taking into account is, that I guess, I, well, I've certainly not lived out in the UAE at all. I'm not sure if anyone else has. The one comment in the story that makes me think it might be to do with the local culture or the number of accidents locally is you can win rewards for every day they drive accident free. Does that indicate there's a higher number of accidents there by default? And they're just trying to bring that volume or number down. So it might be a short term impact. We have seen data that says using these sorts of schemes and insights you give back to drivers does actually change driving behavior, number one. And then number two, I link it to COVID, we've seen the US actually lead the, lead the charge in refunding drivers for miles not driven on policies that are annually based. And as a net result, the resurgence in interest in usage-based insurance and telematics. So maybe if we're all driving less or we're renting cars or renting bikes or whatever else, then actually uh, this sort of scheme would be quite useful to apply onto a, a rental bike or rental car. With that, folks, that wraps up the new show. As I said, a bumper episode. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Twitter, LinkedIn, or otherwise? Mike, where will we find out more about you? You can go to darkmatterins.com or follow Dark Matter InsurTech on LinkedIn. 
Fantastic. Michael? You can go to our website, claimtechnology.co.uk, or you can email me at hello at claimtechnology.co.uk. And last but by no means least, Sophie. Yeah, if you want to know more about Anthemus, we're at anthemus.com. Um, otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood, or if you are an InsurTech startup, um, my email is sophieanthemus.com. Fantastic. And you can find me on Twitter usually at Nigel Walsh. Thank you to all of our guests. Great discussion, loads of news. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. Again, as I said at the outset, any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.